the sex scenes and the, the, the break room and that sort of thing, I'm a little less thrilled about. But uh, how, how much of that is happening right now? Right. <laughs> Very little, I suspect. PowerPoints, power lunches, conference calls, reply to all, endless meetings, constant check-ins, and so much wasted time. Are you sick of the BS? So are we. It's time to take our time back, rework the way we work, and make every call a call to action. This is a podcast for people who want to stop talking and really start connecting. This is After 12. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to After 12, 12 for 12's original podcast series that explores cool companies, brands, messages, and makers, and what compels us to take notice and become fans. Uh, we've got a very, very contagious show for you today. So please, regardless of your political reasons, wear a face mask. Our guest today is an infectious disease specialist and assistant professor at the University of Chicago with 20 years of clinical experience in both adult and pediatric medicine. Since March, he's been scrambling and scrutinizing the ever evolving standards of care in treating COVID-19 patients. While we've been on the sidelines talking to marketers and makers, he's been on the front lines helping to save lives. He is a friend who trained with my wife he was the first person I thought of when I heard of the global pandemic, and he's was also my doctor once who refused to look at my genitals. Internet, please join me in welcoming Dr. Steven Schrantz to After 12. Steve, what's going on, brother? It's good to hear from you, Adam. How you been? Uh, I've been uh, largely depressed, catatonic, and uh, over-imbibing alcohol. How have you been? <laughs> Similar. <laughs> how else can you get through these days these days right no it's uh these are trying times interesting times um i think we'll all look back on 2020 as a uh an inflection point you know uh, and uh i think that's why you're inviting me on today to talk about and we're going to look back on this in 10 years and be like do you remember when and there will be all there on video do you remember podcasts you remember, exactly. You remember these funny things called video cameras, and because now it's all planted in our heads and what have you. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're right. These are extremely intense times with you know COVID and Trump and you know Black Lives Matter and fascism and depression and unemployment and the election coming up. I I have I've been crying a lot, but you know, there's also um, for you. I mean this must be just the best time to be an infectious disease doctor. Yeah, I mean, there's that old quote that says, may you live in interesting times, right? Uh, and uh, and there's the, I was watching Hamilton a few weeks ago with my, my kids and there's the whole song about, uh, uh, just look around, look around, how lucky we are to be alive right now, right? Yeah. And that's, that's the kind of the, the situation we find ourselves in. And so, um, you know, as an infectious disease specialist, this is kind of exciting in the sense that everybody's got our eyes on us as to how we're going to deal with this, you know, and solve what I think is, you know, the world's largest problem right now. I don't think I'm going out on a limb too much there to say that. Yeah, it's it's funny to use the the theatrical metaphor too with Hamilton. That was actually the last show that Nora and I saw in New York City at the end of December, 
to celebrate her her big birthday. I won't say which one it is because she'll kill me. But it's you know it's thinking of being in that crowded theater environment and thinking like even then because I am such a germaphobe. Like people are coughing and it's hot and stuffy and those you know Broadway seats are so close together. Um, and I'm listening to to the story on stage unfolding about you know we're revolting from you know the the tyrannical King George and and this this threat that is so ever real. Well, I don't think in our lifetimes for sure we've ever had such a threat that was looming, not just in our unconsciousness, but consciously in, in everything we do from, you know, having to, to don a mask or, or sanitize our hands every two minutes or, you know, whatever the case, it's just knowing that this is a mortal threat. Um, so, with that said, and as an ID doctor, what, what is it like going to the office, the old hallowed halls of the University of Chicago these days? Well, right. I mean, I think it's been an evolution, right? And I first kind of came on, you know, with COVID the way everybody else did. I remember vividly mid-January seeing the, the New York Times uh, with the article about this new virus discovered in Wuhan, China. I thought it was interesting because... I've been to China one time, and guess where I visited? <laughs> That's great. This small town of 12 million people in the middle of China. So we have a relationship with Wuhan University and went out there to give a few lectures. Uh, actually ended up having to give a graduation speech to a few people uh, about you know their uh, graduating class because we had an affiliation uh, during their medical education. But regardless, um, that was what was interesting about it. And I think at the time... Most of us looked at it as, oh, here's another coronavirus coming out of China, right? We've had SARS-CoV-1 back in 2002-03, and then there was MERS in 2012. uh, And the thought was, all right, let's see where this one goes. Um, And I then gave a presentation to our section in February. Every week we have to give a talk. Uh, Somebody in the section says, all right, this is something new or interesting. So I was like, well... I guess I should talk about this. This is new, interesting, it's different. At that time, we didn't have, but I think one case in Chicago at that time. And right, so right. it was like, all right, why are we getting all excited about this? Flu seems to be a much more of a problem. Um, and it wasn't apparent entirely at that time, but there was the, the inkling that maybe this was going to be something bigger, uh, especially when you saw the way China was acting about it. The numbers and the way they were acting were not congruent. You know, just the the amount of effort they were putting into squashing this down was impressive and scary. And then, uh, and then when you and I talked at the beginning of March is when there was the first case of community spread in the U.S. that was documented. And, and do, you, do you remember what you told me via text? Am I allowed to, to share expletives on this uh, podcast? Yeah, this, uh, absolutely. Yeah, right. <laughs> I guess even my kids could know that word. Yeah, I said, yeah, this shit's going to get real. Yeah. And, uh, and it, you know, it has. It has. Yeah. yeah. So, um, well, what, what makes this, this virus so unique and what, why is it so difficult to contain and, and to treat when you, when you gave your lecture, you didn't know the first time, but like what, you know, now going five months into the future. Yeah. So we've learned a lot about this virus over the last several months. Uh, it's been a steep learning curve for the entire medical community and myself personally. Um, I've been giving a, uh, educational webinar every other week 
to a group of primary care doctors here in Chicago. So every week I've got to go through the literature and what's new, what's different, what do we know now that we didn't know before. The uh, um, evolution of, of, you know, our knowledge in regards to how it's spread. You know, early on, there was a paper that came out of the New England Journal that basically said it could be on any surface and live for 72 hours or more. And so that freaked everybody out that Amazon packages needed to be sterilized when they came in, that mail carriers could somehow pick it up just from delivering the mail. Right. Everything wiped down exactly. I mean, and so there was that period. And I think we've moved out of that period. Uh, mm -hmm. We recognize now that the, the uh, virus is mostly spread by human contact. You know, aerosolization is now becoming uh, an important part of the uh, spread. Um, you know, in that continuum of what's a droplet to what's an aerosol, you know, there's this, you know, vast expanse. You know, the, the closer you are to somebody who's infected, the more likely you are to be infected, but they're still being in the same room with somebody is not without its own risk. Uh, but I think we've kind of come to the realization that, you know, wiping down your groceries when you get home is probably not needed, right? I'm still doing it. I know, right? And yeah. that's yeah. the other component of this whole thing that's been interesting is, that, you know, there's a whole psychological component to dealing with a virus that you can't see. You know, dealing with an enemy that's un unseen out there that you feel completely vulnerable any moment you leave your house. Um, and anytime you interact with somebody. And so that vulnerability is another aspect of this. And the other thing we didn't know early on was how uh, important asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic spread was. Um, and as we've learned more about that, that's where the, the idea of universal masking came in mm -hmm. um, to uh, prevent that. You know, I was just having a conversation with my brother on the way to work today, and he's like, He's now working at a college, small college, thousand students in Ohio. And, you know, the idea of one case and then everybody gets tested, but it's going to take seven days to come back. And I'm like, well, this is exactly why you just wear a mask because you just never know. And so if everybody wears a mask, you know, perhaps we can get a control on this. And then there's the whole politicization of masking and how that evolved. And it's been a roller coaster. <laughs> and drink. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, um, but you talk about like this invisible disease. I mean, you know, we talked a couple days ago and I, you know, what really scared me a few years ago was back in Sierra Leone with Ebola. Um, but, you know, with Ebola, you, you knew to stay away from the, the guy or the gal who was bleeding out their eyes and ears and throwing up blood. I mean, it was you couldn't really get sick and, unless there were symptoms shown. Right. Yeah. No, that's. You're right. That's a major difference between something like Ebola and, and SARS-CoV-2, right? The, the, the virus Ebola is that it's most contagious as somebody dies. So somebody gets it, the virus continues to rise, they die, the virus is at its apex in that dead body. And so dealing with dead bodies is one of the major ways people were getting contaminated or infected, if you will, uh, with uh, Ebola. Whereas with it's the exact opposite with uh, SARS-CoV-2, where that height of um, of uh, infection, contagiousness, and the ability Contagious. to get an infection, right, is within five days. That first five days, and so that's when the virus is actually at its apex. And so, are, are, are bodies still contagious after death? I mean, post mortem. I mean, I think it depends on the timeline from when they were infected, right? So we know that 
you know, within two weeks of an infection, the virus is pretty much gone. So if you, but the interesting thing is, is this virus then spirals out of control with an immune reaction that sets in usually seven to 10 days into the infection. And that's usually what kills people. It's the clotting and the immune reactivation from the, uh, from the virus as opposed to the virus itself. So the body trying to fight the virus kills the body. Yes. All right. And so, okay. Yes. And, and, and what is it doing? I mean, so this is a vascular disease. So it's, is it constricting all the blood vessels in your body? Is that, I mean, how's it? So, I mean, the, the actual pathophysiology, you know, what is causing the virus is still, uh, you know, being worked out. But what we can tell from autopsy studies is that what this virus does is it causes microthrombi or microclots to form in vessels all over the body, uh, specifically in the lungs. Uh, and that's where we're seeing that. And we see vascular complications of stroke, of kidney failure, because you're blocking blood flow to these major organs. You know, the unfortunate Broadway star that uh, made the news. Had, yeah, he had to have his leg amputated. Before, right, he had or... to have his leg, leg amputated, right. So those sort of complications are things that have been talked about. Um, and so, and that's that's unique to this virus. We have not seen that in any other virus. It's actually interesting in that, like, a virus like Ebola causes you to bleed, right? You know, the bleeding eyes and all that. That's real with Ebola. It's the exact opposite with this virus. It causes you to clot. Huh. So it's fascinating from that point of view. And so looking at, you know, how do you, vet, you, know, you know, provide oxygen and support to these patients has been an evolution, a quick evolution, right? You know, this idea that we're going to need all these ventilators, you know, the Defense Production Act to make all these ventilators, right? Yeah. Turns out ventilators are really bad for you if you end so up with ventilators. ventilators. Right. No, no. right. Yeah. So that's been an interesting evolution to watch, right? And then you have, you know, I don't even want to talk too much about the hydroxychloroquine thing, but uh, I, I actually do want to talk a little yeah, bit about it just because, well, no, so it's real fascinating. Newsweek yesterday released an article um, from Harvey Reich, uh, MD, PhD, professor, professor of uh, 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 epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. And, and basically his whole thesis is that the key to defeating COVID-19 already exists and we need to start using it. And it's it, his his point is that um, using hydroxychloroquine with antibiotics, um, azithromycin or what's the other one? Um, yeah, right. That that those in in, in combination um, are are efficacious ways to kill the virus uh, with extreme cases early on. Now, I mean, I, I kind of read this in Newsweek and I was thinking, is Newsweek still a reputable news magazine? And, and I don't even know what source to believe anymore, Steve. So what All do you right. say? So, so we're, the story of hydroxychloroquine actually started with SARS-CoV-1, right? And so if you go back to 2005, a nice paper was published looking at in vitro work looking at hydroxychloroquine neutralizing the virus uh, in an in vitro study. So this wasn't done in patients. This was done in a lab in Petri dishes, right? right? And people got excited about that idea. And then when this virus showed up, a lot of people were like, well, maybe this will work. Let's, and it, I think people rightly thought of it, let's use it early to prevent infection. So I remember not long after you and I talked in March, um, a good friend of mine up at University of Minnesota, a guy named David Bulware, 
started a study looking at hydroxychloroquine prevention. And it was a really unique clinical trial where he recruited patients from all over the United States, basically saying, if you've been exposed to coronavirus, shoot us an email, and we'll mail you hydroxychloroquine or a placebo. And we'll it's see a pretty it. inexpensive drug, right? It is, yeah. right. Yeah. And so he got some quick funding from his university. They set up the study like within a matter of days. I was shocked how quickly this came about. And he ran the study. That study was published at the end of May in the New England Journal showing uh, that it was uh, not effective. So this idea that hydroxychloroquine has not been rigorously tested is not, you know, it's just been debunked, you know. Have you looked at this Yale um, research yet from Dr. Rich? I have not. I, I can tell you I have not looked at the, the, the news, Newsweek article or Dr. Rich's uh, research on this. However, I'm familiar with all the other studies that have shown that it's not effective. Right. So, um, so it'd be interesting to understand that. Um, and I'd also be interested to know why Dr. Rich is publishing his research in Newsweek. Uh, <laughs> and not, and this, not podcast. this podcast. Right. Well, there's that, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, so again, that's really funny that you say that. I mean, we're living in such a highly um, polarizing time, regardless with everything going on. But everything has this bifurcated, mediated um, perspective. You're you're on one side or you're on another. Um, I'm I'm wondering how that is affecting the overall global pursuit of both treatment paradigms and vaccination you know, studies, because, you know, when things become politicized, then the the funding flow from, you know, and to these things is affected. Um, what do you think right now in terms of, you know, like looking at the, the big picture, are, are we on track with treatment regimens? Are we on track with vaccine protocols? <sighs> I mean, at this stage, we're still in a, we're in the dark, right? Um, you know, it's been super interesting to watch how um, people have reacted to, you know, let's talk about treatment first before we get into the vaccine. So the evolution of treatment over the first three months of this has been fascinating to watch, right? In the sense that we started out, our first drugs that we thought about using, honestly, were hydroxychloroquine. And, and then some HIV drugs, like uh, a drug called Kaletra, which is a combination of uh, uh, lopinavir and rotonavir. Uh, and the reason is, is there was some similarity between the um, SARS-CoV-2 virus and HIV in terms of how it uses cellular mechanisms to replicate. And there was some data to suggest that Kaletra would work. So, like, we saw our first cases, like, these are the tools we have. So we started using them. And we weren't seeing a lot of respect, uh, response, I should say. And a paper came out from China in late March looking at Kalitra that said it didn't work. Now, that being said, all those patients had been started in late in therapy. They had all been, you know, 14 days into uh, to their disease before they got started. So, but immediately people abandoned Kalitra. Like, it was like, nope, that doesn't work. Moving on. And it was similar with hydroxychloroquine. And I have to say, honestly the politicization of it moved doctors away from it faster. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of my colleagues that we'd be on calls talking about it and we're like, that doesn't work. And a lot of it was, and then jokes and memes and things would come out. And it was like, you were shunned. 
if you thought hydroxychloroquine worked, you know? And so that was kind of disconcerting in the sense that even, you know, people who were supposed to be guided by science were being guided by their politics as well. Right. It's, I mean, it's still happening. It's still happening. And it, and as much as we make fun of our politicians for, for doing it, we're all doing it. Um, and as much as we want to stay that we're scientific, when you're dealing with the unknown, these variables start to play a role. So, so that was interesting. And then, and then we got remdesivir, right? So remdesivir is the, uh, the miracle drug from Gilead, right? And we, and it was really the only one that seemed to have a lot of efficacy early on. And so we made a strong push to put a lot of our patients on remdesivir early on. And what was interesting about it was at the same time, I was helping with a study uh, that was looking at convalescent plasma. Uh, and so that's the idea where you take blood from um, an individual that's already recovered from COVID. Right, right. And you then, you know, take the antibodies or the plasma out from that individual, and then you give it to somebody who's sick. Yep. This is a age-old treatment. It was first used in the Spanish flu in 1918. It was used in, you know, SARS. It was used in MERS. It's been used in a variety of other situations, including Ebola. So, um, And so Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson did it. So, I mean... Well, there you go, right? I mean, damn, Tom Hanks did it. Exactly. But early on, that was, hey, this is legit. This has got some history. And so, but what was interesting about it from our point of view, I was helping with that study. There was the remdesivir study, and everybody was gravitating towards remdesivir right away. It's like, you know, a drug has got to work better than antibodies from somebody else that has been used for 100 years, you know? Um, and so there was that whole push that that was i think you know there's an american sensibility about this that some product some new thing is going to come along and be the savior the magic and silver i think bullet. that's still it right so remdesivir was that early on like this is going to be it and i would sit in on conferences with you know very senior professors here at the university and they were all remdesivir 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 and i'm like there's no evidence for this so when the evidence finally came out, the study was stopped short. It did not show a mortality benefit. It showed a length of stay benefit. So basically, if you were sick enough to be in the hospital, but well enough to live, you got out of the hospital sooner. In the no man's land. So you get like, what, three or four days, right? I mean, it yeah. truncated it by three or four days. Okay. okay. Exactly. Well, I mean, so according to the Sun-Times in late June, uh, the University of Chicago was selected to assist in the study of a COVID-19 vaccine developed by Massachusetts biotech company Moderna. Now, without violating any NDAs or IOUs or pinky swears, how has this process been? And uh, on the other side, from treatment to vaccine, do you think an efficacious vaccine is possible? Do you think this is the way to pursue where medical technology and science is going right now, Steve? Yeah. So I think the pursuit of the vaccine is exceedingly important. And I think that I do long-term think that this is the solution that will uh, get us out of this bind. Um, that being said, um, it's going to be challenging. Uh, we are going at this vaccine development, you know, warp speed uh as it's been dubbed right i know it's, i mean I, as a marketing geek on the hunt for cool brands as a t-shirt says i don't right. think i, I would have opted for Operation warp, speed. warp speed 
engage. With hyperspace, are you more of a Star Wars guy? Uh, yeah, I would have gone. Uh, yeah. gone I would have gone hyperspace. I wouldn't use science fiction at all. I mean, we're talking about reality and a very, very scary reality. So anyway, I, I the first time I read that, I was like, honestly, this is this is just par for the course, isn't it? Yeah. And unfortunately, at that this point, I think you're right. So, so I think um, most. I mean, and I'm not saying anything that has not already been talked about in the sense that the 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 duration it usually takes to from a vaccine to go from the lab to market is anywhere between five and 10 years. And that we're now condensing that whole thing into a, you know, a study that's going to be completed by the end of the year that just started this week. Um, and because of the speed of it, everything is complicated. So the contracting with institutions is, is held up, you know, and, um, We've been asked to try to get between 500 and 1,000 subjects for the study, trying wow. to recruit that number. Think about the complexities involved with, um, okay, once you give the vaccine, now you got to bring it back and give them a booster a month later. So right there, you're going to lose a, a group of people that don't ever come back. Sure. Um, then you've got, once you've got that group, anytime they have a symptom that looks like COVID, they need to be evaluated to see if they actually have the disease or not. Sure. The list of COVID symptoms, as you know, is like this, right? right? So the person is becoming hyper aware of their symptoms, right? They go, oh, I have a little scratchy throat this morning. I got to go get tested. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't smell that, uh, that fried chicken last night as well as I thought, or that, um, you know, that dessert. Do you, uh, do you, do you have a, a, a planted in my house? Right. <laughs> so any, so any little. So I could do this study. If I just could plant a bug in every subject's house, then um, then I would know if they're having symptoms for sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it's going to be things like that, and you know, trying to run that, um, you know, as a clinician, and thinking, okay, you need to come in and get tested, or no, that doesn't sound real, and it's, it's going to be very challenging. It's going to be very busy, and so we're doing that in a condensed time frame. The other thing that's important about vaccine studies is what you realize is. Vaccine side effects are fairly uncommon. They're uncommon. Okay. Right. I mean, you get a sore arm, you maybe get a, a, a fever the day of, that sort of thing. But real true side effects are, are hard to uncover because they usually are like on the order of like one in 10,000. And one in 10,000 sounds like it's not that important, right? Yeah. But when you're yeah. going to give it to a million plus people, one in 10,000 adds up pretty quick. And if yeah. they're severe side effects, that can really be a problem. And in this in this environment too, really bad publicity because if, exactly. if there are there so are, many right? side effects and people start, I mean, the, the news is immediate, right? So right, so. and imagine you know once it gets out that oh this vaccine has a side effect, then we're not going to be wanting to do it. Yeah, yeah, obstacles yeah. So, to adoption become exponential at that point. I, I mean, so how how sure can you be? I mean, for instance, with Moderna, you're going into stage three trials now, right? So the number of uh, people we're going to hope to bring into the study is uh, 30,000 individuals. Wow. So nationwide? Nationwide. Or nationwide. Okay. nationwide. Right. And actually, the Pfizer study that's also started this week is looking at the same, 30,000 individuals, and they're looking at it in several different countries. But if you have a, a side effect that's 1 in 10,000, 
Yeah. You're going to get maybe three. And those three individuals, you're going to, how are you going to really know if that's a real problem with the vaccine or not? It's crazy because, you know, right now in history, I don't think there's any other time that we've lived through where you've got a group of scientists, biotechnologists, technologists, um, pharmaceutical companies, you know, individuals across science that are trying to get to this vaccine. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of the times as a citizen of the United States, I close my eyes and I think there's so many smart people out there that somebody is going to arrive at that magic formula that has a delivery mechanism that works, that has, you know, sustained benefits, that doesn't have long-term, you know, negative side effects. Um, but I, I also know that, you know, in business, um, things don't always go according to plan. And I know that, you know, that it's not as, as magically, you know, delicious as we'd want it to be. Uh, and I, I mean, are you seeing that in just what, what, what you're going through in this, this one trial? I mean, like how, how optimistic are you, I guess, as a scientist, as a physician that like, we're going to land on that magic formula? Long-term I'm optimistic. Okay. okay. I think that we will find a product that um, is going to significantly curb uh, COVID-19. Um, do I think we're going to have it by the end of this year? That I'm more dubious about. Um, I think there is, um, I think what will end up happening, honestly, is one of these products will show, or several of these products will show some effect. Mm -hmm. You'll be able to say, yeah, it's 50% effective. And people say, good enough, go. And, and that's what we'll end up with um, in the short term. Long term, I'm excited in some ways because I think that this vaccine technology that we're exploring with these have never been truly tested uh, in, a, in a robust way. And I think that there is some promise there. And I think that we could end up with vaccines against all sorts of things that work um, if this technology pans out. Um, so that's exciting, right? You know, we're talking about, you know, kind of a, uh, a, a you know, a, an entire switch in our technology, right? The way we make vaccines could be forever changed after this. And so that's exciting. Um, so long-term, very hopeful. Short-term, it's going to be a rough ride for a little bit. It's, well, I mean, it's funny, too, to think about all the technology, all of the great science that we have come up with in the last hundred years, and to think that this is not an unprecedented uh, pandemic. I mean, the Spanish flu in 1918 affected two million people, um, and they didn't have the same technology. And they got through it, you know, wearing masks, hosting classes outside, um, distancing, shutting down. But, you know, the fact that now we are so hyper-conscious of, you know, missing out and that everything has such an immediacy behind it, you know, the, the fact that, you know, from March, let's say through June, we went into quarantine and, you know, yet we couldn't contain ourselves fast enough. We had to get out once the state started opening up. And you talk about asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic spread, all of a sudden, you know, the rates of infection shot up and, and now, 
you know, we're over 4 million confirmed cases in the United States. And, you know, that number again is an exponent, probably, you know, 40 times that, 20 times that, who knows. But what would you say as, as the cl clinician who's counseling families, patients, recovered patients, what is the best thing that people can do now to ensure that, that they are, are, are safe, they're careful, they're doing the right thing? So, I mean, I think in this current environment, you know, we need to continue to think about risk mitigation as opposed to risk avoidance. Because um, I think risk avoidance is where we all want to be. Yeah. We want to yeah. just curl up on our couch and, and pretend this is all going to go away. And frankly, if everybody in the world did that, it would go away. <laughs> it would there's, take two weeks and it would go away. There's just nothing, there's nothing left to watch on Netflix and, and Hulu and Amazon right. Prime. Amazon Prime. But, you know, can you imagine if everybody in the entire world curled up on their couch for two weeks? I mean, that's what we actually tried uh, in April, right? We, we got as close to that as we could and it didn't work. No one had so, toilet paper. So I, I think we have to just recognize that this is going to be with us for some time and we have to continue to think about risk mitigation. The best risk mitigation strategies we have at this point are universal masking, hand washing as frequently as possible and, um, and social distancing. And when I say social distancing, I think things have kind of gotten a little crazy about, you know, like this six foot bubble around you. Um, it's really staying away from large crowds, you know, and that's unfortunately what's going to be hard about professional sports returning to all the things that, you know, make life fun and enjoyable is oftentimes you know, getting together with a large group of people. Restaurants, Restaurant. theaters, movie theaters, sports right. arenas. Yeah. yeah. All those things are going to continue to be a problem. Um, and that's the unfortunate future for now. So. How, how are you guys doing? Like what, what's keeping you up most at night? Like what's, what's the biggest stress point for you guys? The biggest stress point for me, honestly, is my children and how this is affecting uh, their development and their education. Um, I think this is a fundamental shift for them and they are, um, yeah, it's challenging for them. Um, especially for my, uh, my high school kid, uh, I have a 16 year old daughter and, um, yeah, it's just been real challenging. I mean, it's already an awkward social time for, for kids, you know, trying to find your lane, trying to find your friend group, trying to integrate into and figure out what you're good at how you're going to contribute to society someday. All those things come, come online in high school. Um, and I think when you're just spending all day in your bedroom, looking at a zoom chat with a teacher, um, trying to read some books, you know, it's, it's not going to be the same. No. And so I, I, I worry about that. Um, are you worried that they're not, that your girls are not going to want to be infectious disease doctors? They've already both said, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I got the oldest. <laughs> yeah. No, it's funny. They look at my wife, who's a lawyer, and they're like, oh, that looks like more fun. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I don't know about that. I, I, I object, Your Honor. I know. But they, uh, but they both are. Um, I had <laughs> my youngest daughter, actually. I think I'm working on her uh, to become a doctor because she watched Grey's Anatomy oh, and yeah. binged that. And she's like, oh, I can see that. I'm like, all right, maybe you should be a surgeon then. And I can push that. But 
Um, and I watched a few episodes with her. I'm like, you know, that's not entirely a bad message. I mean, she's, there's a group of strong-willed, positive-minded women who are surgeons that run that show. What are you doing down here? Just sitting here with my penis. And you're like, okay, that's probably not a horrible role model, although the, the sex scenes and the, the, the break room and that sort of thing, I'm a little less thrilled about. But uh, how, how much of that is happening right now? <laughs> right. <laughs> Very little, I would suspect. But what do I know? Let's let's take off take off the gown and untape our gloves and take off our hats. Well, as an infectious disease provider, I still have to put out uh, STIs, and I can tell you those are still occurring. So, really? Uh, really? Oh yeah. No, we're still seeing people coming in with your your typical STIs. It'll be interesting to look at. Uh, the amount of gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis that have been spreading over these uh, over this period of time. Like, you can't really tell as you're going through it, but somebody's going to produce that study and say, yeah, here was the COVID <laughs> dip. Because all of those have been on the rise yeah. over yeah. the last seven years. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see if it takes a, a dip during this period of time. Right. Well, especially, I mean, when you do run out of options on Netflix, I mean, what do you do? And And these... These people that were kind of not really couples, maybe they met on Tinder or they started dating and then they started quarantining together or they became part of their, their germ circles or little bubbles. Yeah, man, that's that's crazy. Um, you started the podcast saying you think this is going to be an inflection point. Do you do you think all of this? Do you think we'll we'll learn from this, Steve? I mean, like to, to evolve a little bit more. I mean, to me, it seems like we've been such a consumer culture for so long, especially in the United States. And I've used this analogy with other guests that like, you know, we're the largest consumer in the world and China is the, the largest distributor manufacturer in the world. And the relationship to the disease and the spread, and it's, it's just no, no surprise to me. But do you think this will help us achieve more of a culture of consciousness, i.e. what's happening with Black Lives Matter or what's happened after quarantine? Well, I think there are, there's many threats there, right? And um, I think, do I think this will change our consumer culture? No. I think that in some ways this will double down on it. I think what will, the lesson that will be learned coming out of this is we can, we can con consume our way out of this problem. Um, buy this vaccine today. Buy the vaccine, right. Or we'll develop a treatment and uh, that'll, that'll solve the problem. Right. So I, I actually think that that won't change. Um, in terms of the other political movements that are ongoing at the time, I do feel like there, there are changes afoot there. Um, and I feel that, um, yeah, if things are continuing to evolve. Now, I'm also somewhat pessimistic in that I'm not sure it's going to happen in the next three months. I'm becoming more of a skeptic, and I think that um, this is going to be a dec decades-long change. I think we'll look back, as I said at the beginning, in 2030 at this and, and kind of reminisce about what things were like in 2020, because I think by 2030, we'll be like, oh, yeah. That was a tumultuous decade. And I think we're just starting on the, the challenging times in some ways. Um, I don't think we're going to kick coronavirus in the butt in the next year. And it's going to be the bump in the stock market. And everybody's going to go around and celebrate. And it's going to be wonderful times. I think it's going to be a little bit more prolonged. And uh, yeah, it's going to be challenging. 
but I think society's been in need of a reset for some time. Like, you know, right, there's right. a there's kind of a cyclical pattern to societies in some ways, uh, and I hope that this is kind of our. You know, if you think about what happened after World War II, you know, as devastating as that was, it kind of reset a lot of societies, including our own, um, and led to a, a period of um, relative peace. Um, and so I was worried at some point that a war was necessary for that change. Um, I'm thinking now that maybe a pandemic is all that needs to kind of reset. I just, in my mind, in my mind, I have a picture of you in your lab coat and all your PPE holding Aaron on the streets of New York City and that iconic classic shot of the sailor returning V-Day and the streamers come down. I look forward to that, Steve. I, I, you and me both, man. That sounds good. Well, it's been awesome talking with you, brother. And uh, and when that day happens, I'll be I'll be here with my camera and a glass of champagne for you and, and one for Aaron. I'm looking forward to that. Well, thanks for joining us, pal. And uh, and we'll keep in touch. Yep, right. absolutely. Bye.